0: This This is
1: the Second Second
0: Story Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. We had some technical difficulties that delayed this episode, so expect another one soon. With our collective eye finally turned towards the patterns of institutionalized race and class violence in our country, the horror this matrix of oppression creates is magnified when we view it through the eyes of children and that somehow we must communicate to them the ways in which their bodies may be in very grave danger. Perhaps we cannot heal or disrupt every broken system around us, but we can in our own microcosmic way decide where we stop reconstituting these violences, and show someone young that their traumas do not have to be forever. In the tradition of James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates, Second Story Presents, Latanya Lane.
0: have a great memory for dates. But there are a couple that stand out for me. Obvious ones like that, May afternoon in 2008, when, with labored breath, I forced myself to look at the circular analog clock hanging on the wall opposite me. I deliberately took note of the shorthand and the long hand and the second hand, and forced myself to make meaning of their positions. As my sister stood behind me, stroking my back, and my then-husband stood at my knee, chanting, here he comes, here he comes. And the midwife stood in front of me saying, "Wait, wait, Tanya, no, stop pushing. Hold on, oh, 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 okay. During all of that, it felt immensely important to know that at exactly 1:57 p.m. in the afternoon my son entered the world and then there are dates you don't realize you'll remember like that perfect july evening i was leaving the taste of chicago with my friend chaka we'd gone to taste as an excuse to wear something pretty pay too much for samples and catch up on one another's lives I'd chosen a dress I rarely wear, a seafoam number made for the beach. I enjoyed the weight of the skirt against my legs as we walked. The swish of the fabric gave me the feeling that, with the right wind, the skirt could double as a light, airy balloon. After crossing to Michigan Avenue, I took a moment to appreciate how perfect the night was. Warm, dark, and the best sounds of the city everywhere. Conversation punctuated with laughter. A talented musician covering, isn't she lovely, on the saxophone. Chaka was checking her phone as we walked. The screen's light illuminating her face when suddenly she stopped. Wait, she said. I looked at her as she read, scrolled, and then looked at me. Zimmerman got acquitted, she said. I shook my head, what? Surely she was talking about another Zimmerman. We couldn't be talking about the Zimmerman who ignoring police instructions, followed a kid home and then fought that kid and then murdered that kid in the street. Surely we weren't talking about that Zimmerman. Yeah, she said, the verdict just came in. The world tilted. I felt my chest tighten, and something at the bottom of my heart break. I sat down on the sidewalk. My perfect summer dress spread about me, deflated. Chaka's mouth turned down as she looked at me. Are are you okay? I tried to force air into my lungs, but it was work, and I suddenly felt so very tired. I nodded and shook my head. She sat down with me for a while, and though we eventually left, in a lot of ways, I never got up from that sidewalk. Seven years after that May afternoon, and just two years after that July evening, I stood in my apartment. It was a tiny number with five rooms. The kitchen and living room split evenly between one another, the stove catty corner to the wall where the couch sat. I stood in the kitchen with my back to the stove, where I could see into every room and assessed the level of filth. Laundry spilled out of the hamper in my room, dishes filled both sinks. I couldn't quite identify where all the stains on the stove had come from, and there was something sticky on my foot from a spot on the floor. I could put it off no longer, The time had come to clean. Just as I was finding a playlist to support me in my least favorite activity, my son emerged from behind his grape-colored bedroom door holding Candyland. He came out of his room and stood in front of me wearing gray gym shorts, a t-shirt, and his Spider-Man slippers. His curly hair added three inches to his height, but he still only came up to my rib rib cage. Let's play a game, he said the game sounded fun (laughs) and might've been a good idea since we were in the middle of winter and cooped up in our tiny apartment, but the mess was winning and definitely needed my attention more than the cotton candy princess. So I said, I can't play a board game with you now. I need to clean, but I'll play with you later. I put on my headphones and scrolled through my playlist to decide which Sasha Fierce number would usher me into cleaning but before I could tap play, he lost it. He started screaming, you're just on your phone. You're never gonna play with me. The illogic of this statement irritated me, but it was the screaming I couldn't abide. Look, I said, don't yell. You can play with toys or watch a movie or please help me clean. But cleaning has to happen right now. No board games. This is where he decided to grab and kick and hit me. Hit me. My mind blinked and I had an immediate urge to strike. I resisted the impulse and instead asked myself, okay, what what, what else can I do? What else, what else? Call someone, yes, call someone. Someone to talk him down or talk me down. I called my sister. No answer. I called my dad, no answer. My mother, my brother, two close friends, no answer. I took a deep breath. You cannot hit me, I said. He raised his hand and hit me again. Y'all. The whole thing felt like a challenge like an old Western showdown. Like everyone in the saloon is laughing it up and having a good old time until baby Fast Fingers smacks mommy the law. All the music stops, the laughter stops and everybody watches wondering what's gonna happen now? Because something has to happen. Light-skinned as he is, my baby is still too brown to be hitting authority figures. (laughs) The defiance guiding my son's hand that night is a defiance that could get him labeled as troubled at school or insubordinate at work or resisting arrest at a traffic stop. That he didn't know that terrified me. As a child, I remember thinking, my parents were overzealous with their spankings. I'm not a bad kid, I would think. Now, as a parent, I understand their discipline was less about goodness and more about fear. Mine and theirs. Their fear sat like thick clouds over our lives, sometimes overflowing into a violent rain. Whether it drowned us or allowed us to, our lives to take root, I don't know. But for them, part of parenting me had to involve teaching me the fear of living black in this country. And their fear of being black in this country drove their strict management of my behavior. It didn't matter whether the infraction was real or perceived. It didn't matter the motivation of my actions, whether curiosity, mistake, or malice. What mattered was I learned the code of acceptable behavior and learned to perform it reflexively, because a step out of line, perceived or real, was a step towards a pain they didn't wield and they couldn't control. And since that July evening, so much of what I'd see on the news was images of Black suffering and death. Videos of a child and her desk being flipped over and slammed into the floor by a security officer because she refused to give up her cell phone. Videos of a full-grown officer wrestling a bikini-clad girl to the sidewalk because a neighbor was concerned about the black children who showed up at a pool party. Videos of a 12-year-old boy shot within seconds of police officer's arrival as he played in the park with his sister. My parents' fear, inscrutable to me as a child, made so much sense to me in that moment. Aren't the lessons of pain best learned from a hand that loves you rather than a hand that doesn't? Isn't it better that he learned these lessons from me who loves him rather than from the hands of a system who cares, not a whit? And I felt like I was back on that sidewalk, unable to breathe, powerless against this mean, violent thing that lived in the world and feeling so very tired. I felt the kitchen stove against my back and leaned into it a little. I thought about my choices. I still didn't know what to do, so I made the round of phone calls again. Again, no answer. My, cu- my son kept screaming at me, and I felt tears of frustration gather in my eyes. I was at a loss, When I noticed the Google Chrome app on my phone, I tapped on it. I searched seven-year-old tantrum. Hitting parent. I found an article. Hi, children feel big emotions and don't always know how to let them out so they can quickly jump to anger. Ask your child if they were feeling sad about something that happened earlier. Article, you crazy. (laughs) He's not listening to anything I say. Ask him. (sighs) Are you feeling sad that you couldn't play board games? (laughs) He immediately stopped screaming. Yes. Now? Tell him it's okay to feel sad, and he can cry if he wants to. He knows he can cry. Do you even know what you're talking about? Do you want my help or not? (sighs) It is okay to feel sad. You can cry if you want to. He dissolved into a puddle of tears. The risk of my choice to not spank is not lost on me. The argument for beating respectable behavior into black children gets deployed from all corners. It's a logic that's alluring. It's a logic that says your silence, your smile, your willful compliance and your own destruction will totally, totally save you. If you just pull up your pants, talk right, don't wear your hair funny and protest politely, if you do everything just right, When your car stalls in the middle of the road and you get out of the car with your hands in the air, they'll see how respectable you are and you'll be able to get back in the car with your sister to let her know the tow truck is on the way. Unless, of course, because of your blackness, you're seen as a big bad dude rather than someone in need of help. During this time of protest and unrest, I often feel like I'm sitting on the sidelines and a lot of that is because of momming. All of my extra time is spent doing homework, planning meals, managing emotions, and keeping everyone on schedule. Despite my interest in making change in the world, with the exception of a personal invitation from the Obamas to play spades, um, 8.30 bedtime is pretty much law in my home. My heart breaks at every new video I can't watch of a black body crumpling to the ground as state-purchased bullets rip through flesh. And I hate that the best I can do these days is post an article on my Facebook feed. But sitting on the floor of my kitchen, talking my son through his feelings and not hitting him, felt like a moment. A moment, however brief, I could show him that In our house, the fear of state-sanctioned violence did not call the shots and did not justify putting hands on him. Not laying hands on my son felt like a way to get up from that sidewalk and walk forward. Not letting the fear of what this country might do to him drive my hand to sear lessons into his flesh felt like a way to say, your emotions Your frustrations, your successes, your curiosities, your mistakes, and even, baby, even your malice, the entirety of your beautiful black life deeply, deeply matters.
1: Tanya's story was recorded at Pub 626 in October of 2016. She was curated by Rashmi Rustabaki, Directed by Thrissa Haditz, and the sound design was by Ben Zeman. Second Story is supported in part by the Chicago Community Trust, the MacArthur Funds for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, the Arts and Business Council of Chicago, the Arts Work Fund for Organizational Development, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Nick Kawahara, and this this is the Second
0: Second Story Podcast.